Hey everybody, this is Volts for July 29th, 2022. Volts Podcast, a music festival that treads lightly on the earth. I am your host, David Roberts. Listeners, today at Volts we've got something a little different, a little off our beaten path. It is an episode about one of my favorite music festivals. Now, it might not seem obvious to you why you should care about a small music festival in the far northwest of the country, but I think if you are patient and listen for a bit, you'll get a sense of why I'm spending time on it, beyond self-indulgence, that is. So, by the time 2011 rolled around, I was more or less done with music festivals. Yes, listener, I am extremely old. I love live music and have been to many great concerts, but most festival experiences were so hectic, stressful, crowded, dirty, and exploitative that it just no longer seemed worth the hassle. That has only gotten more true in intervening years. So I was a little skeptical when a friend told me about the Pickathon Festival, held every year about 20 miles outside of Portland, Oregon. For one thing, Pickathon? Sounds like one of those twangy festivals with crunchy hippies playing mandolins and banjos at one another. No offense to anyone who enjoys such things, but that is not my bag. But he assured me that the musical lineup is diverse from all genres, focused on acts that are about to break bigger. Anyway, he talked me into going, and listener, it blew my mind. For one thing, the land itself is gorgeous. It is held at Pendarvis Farm, a sprawling area of pasture land and wooded hills that is used only once a year for gatherings, only for Pickathon. Every attendee camps, the festival lasts for three days, but not in some crowded parking lot. Rather, there's a whole network of trails running through the woods with established camping spots that have been used and reused since 1999 when the festival started. Then there's the crowd. It wasn't jam-packed. You could always get food or drink with very little lines. You could always see the band, no matter which band you wanted to see. There were tons and tons of families and children and almost no backward baseball cap bros. It felt oddly wholesome. But perhaps the strongest impression I took away that first weekend was how weirdly anomalously clean the festival was. One staple of festival life is giant overflowing trash cans with food wrappings and disposable cups strewn everywhere. At Pickathon, there was none of that. There was virtually no visible trash anywhere. The water was free available at spigots across the grounds. It all struck me as so intensely human, so humane, that I fell in love and attended it almost every year thereafter. I've written several stories on it. There's one up on Grist, if you want to check it out, from 2013. And then in Vox in 2017, I did another story where I interviewed about 20 bands while they were there. Anyway, Pickathon is back this year after a two-year hiatus, so I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk with festival founder Zale Schoenborn about how the festival has evolved since 1999, what's next on the sustainability front, and what's new at the festival this year. Even if you don't happen to live in the Pacific Northwest and can't attend, it uh, runs from August 5th 
to 7th this year, I think you'll enjoy hearing from someone who has put so much thought into bringing human beings together to commune and celebrate in a socially and environmentally sustainable way. All right, Zale Schoenborn of Pickathon, thank you for coming to Volts. Thanks for having me. I'm sure this must be uh, an insanely busy week for you, so thanks for taking the time. Oh, no problem. It is definitely exciting. Yeah, so there's a ton to talk about uh, with your music festival, but first I guess I'd like to just go back and hear a story that I'm sure you have told hundreds of times by now, but... Pickathon is remarkably long running <laughs> in in the context of the of the music festival world. It started in 1999, which is yeah, just wild. Yeah, <laughs> so stretch your mind back uh, if you can <laughs> that far, and tell our listeners the story of just why did you start a music festival? And initially, when you started it, what was kind of the vision? And to what extent has that vision changed or sort of held steady in the uh, doing math 24 years? <laughs> Three? 23 years since? 24? Tw- I don't know. It's all you got to count one extra year in there, I think. Um, great question. Well, going all the way back, we, you know, the first something that lasts 24 years, if anyone has the honor of kind of a hobby that grows out of control that can turn into <laughs> something. That's the only way you get to what Pickathon is, is is years of making horrible mistakes and fixing them and surviving them. So like all of the above. Um, But if you rewind all the way back to 1999, it really was pretty humble beginnings. We just thought of why don't we have kind of a better music party with our friends? And we always had this idea of genre-based music festivals are really annoying. Like how come we have to be so isolated in a bluegrass festival or a rock festival? And oh, yes. Thank you for saying that. I don't know why that's not a more widespread opinion. Like why would I, it's like we're having an ice cream festival, come and eat all ice cream for three days. I'm like, days. I, I mean, I like ice cream, but. Exactly. You can, you really get sick of music you love if that's all you hear. So <laughs> Um, it was interesting. I mean, because the response from like the pre-program crowds was very negative to that. They huh. just they did not endorse it. There's like a hardcore following in these kind of genre circuits, and if you were there, they're gonna come, you know, see their the genre that they kind of support. But if you mixed it up, you were often never Neverland. And you know, it wasn't until like the really big festivals like Bonnaroo and other folks started mixing it up some that that became a thing. So now it's pretty common, but there's, there's still, you know, we're, we stretch it a little farther and like, that's just kind of like the early days we were just kind of having a party. Let's potluck party. And we said, geez, what can we do with all this energy? Well, let's, let's support our community radio station. So we, we were just like raising money for KBU, um, a local radio station here. And that kind of happened for like six, seven years in that mode. This was in Portland, though. Um. It did start. It was, we were out in Portland. We, we've been in three different sites. So the first site we were out at is Horning's Hideout. So in this KBU phase, we were out in a place a little bit out in the west side of Portland. And beautiful little kind of reserved acreage in the, in the coastal mountains. We didn't survive there because there was just a lot of neighbor turmoil. Mm-hmm. And we were the little festival. We were having awesome acts. I think we had one of the last holy modal rounders, true, <laughs> true performances by them. Um, you know, Kelly Joe Phelps. It was awesome, but it was just not, 
it takes a while. Pickathon is one of those things that we could tell everyone it was going to be awesome. And we basically had to have people come and grow by like 10% a year because that's the only way folks would get it. We just didn't do a lot of what we do now because this site we were at, the Hornings Hideout, had a venue. It had power. It had water. It wasn't like an open farm. Um, it was like a preset site. But when we got kicked out of there about six years into that, we kind of found a temporary home for a year down in Pudding River and then eventually found the Pendarvis Farm. And that's, you know, it's in those years where we really grew up. And what, what year was that? What was the first Pendarvis Farm year? I think it was 2006. So tell listeners, because this is one of the, you know, I think everyone who's been to Pickathon would agree is one of the most striking features of the festival is the grounds itself mm-hmm. and Darvis Farm itself. So just tell us a little bit about how you found that, because my understanding is that that area, that farm is not used for other, you know, festivals or gatherings. It's a, it's a once a year <laughs> for Pickathon kind of thing. So how did that come about? Through friends. So we had somebody that had gotten married there and they said, well, you should check this place out. And it was a friend's Mary. They weren't doing like weddings at that time. They just had kind of a friend's wedding. And I did. I went to the, actually went to the, one of the ceremonies there and checked it out the, the little party they had. And it didn't really know the scale of the property because they hadn't really maintained the back, even right behind their farmhouse. So maybe the, the first two acres, three acres of it, five acres. I could see, but I didn't know it went back a half mile. And mm-hmm. right when we figured out the scale of this and met Scott and Sherry Pendarvis, who um, are definitely special people in the universe, you know, we hit it off. And the energy, you know, Scott and Sherry throw out into the universe is kind of both inviting kind of creativity, but also they want their property to have like this place for wildlife and fauna. And so, not doing something all the time was kind of like part of where they were coming from because they, they weren't looking at it from let's just turn this thing in and turn it around every week. They were like, let's do something special. And then we don't want it to do because we're going to, we're going to wreck the wilderness. One event a year and sort of the rest of the year is like, uh, you know, restoration and, and yeah. growing. So I, I've always wondered, like, is there, how is there not like a line of people at their door saying, I love this you know, I love this area. I love this venue. Let us do this too. At least have two festivals a year, or, you know, or three. Like, it's amazing to me that they've resisted that for all these years. They're just not, it's not a business equation for them. I mean, they want to live and be sustainable, but it's not like, um, it's different than if you were running a business and trying to maximize it. It's just not where they're coming from. And, I, you know, there's a lot of logistics that you have to run through. You have to get permits with the city. So it's it's a bit of just like, the amount of tension you want to try to fight with, like how much, what kind of permit do you want to actually run your events? You got to, right. you got, there's a lot of overhead in that. And I think just us being so large, so impactful, really kind of felt like the right balance for them. And yeah, it's been great. So what do you do? You find this, I mean, basically huge wildland. It's like pasture <laughs> and woodland yes. and you're looking at it and you're like, how, you know, how do I impose a <laughs> festival on this? Like you have to create every path. Oh, yeah. Every stage, every, every you know, sort of venue, like every little bit of the festival has to be imported onto that site because there's nothing pre-existing there. So when you first looked at it, like, how did your mind not just short circuit? Like, how do you <laughs> go from nothing to festival accommodations? 
Uh, well, desperation definitely helps. So uh, that is the kind of starter pack for like willing to like take anything because we didn't have a spot. So we we didn't know really what we could do there, how big it could be. And you're 100% right. When you went beyond kind of the main field they had their horses in, it was 10 feet rolling, four inch thick blackberries choking everything i mean it was it was the craziest amount of blackberries and they just haven't been tended to for a long time so they were they it was more than just wild it was just choked and and you know there were a couple roads there was like an old um this is a second growth forest that was logged probably a couple times but they logged it in the 80s and so that road existed and scott sherry had a couple other trails that they had you know already kind of throughout the land but yeah about 80 percent of those trails sherry and scott kind of rolled up their sleeves and we just we made like a trail system and we slowly surely cleared out the forest over i mean i would say six you you've been coming for a long time so you probably were you there when the wood stage i was trying to figure this out the other day 2011 was my first year okay so we might have been kind of fully baked on close to it on the trail side but we were still probably adding trails when you first, when you came. Um, it, it's been a slow process. There's only so much you can do every year. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is one of the things I think that's really striking about the festival when people get there and see it is that there's now this network of trails through the woods and not only yeah. a network of trails, but these campsites have been used now once a year, every year for whatever decades now. So it's like a little city. Yeah, it's like a little city in the woods of, of little roads and campsites. It's it's there's nothing quite like it anywhere else. That's that is the truth. When it's all assembled together, we like to call it Big Rock Candy Mountain, or <laughs> little you know you don't see rough edges and it just kind of feels like magic. But underneath it, yeah, there's power, there's water, there's security, there's fire, there's dishwashing, there's you know there's there's a site maintenance there's so much everything you would need in a city you're you're right on task right on point and we you know that took a while to kind of build too um, a long while <laughs> we had epic mistakes that were so hard to deal with in the festival year we hit them and then next year we would try to address them and then so the system looks kind of well oiled but it's really a series of just major gas that are probably really custom to the site. You probably wouldn't make sense everywhere else, you know? Right. What were some of the biggest mistakes? Oh, there's so many. I mean, so <laughs> many. Um, for a while, we just let folks go into the woods and find campsites. And I don't know actually if this existed in any other festival, but we have this idea now. And the consequences of that was fine when we were small, but as we started to get a little bit more people um, not familiar with the grounds, there was a situation where people would just like go in a hundred feet. They wouldn't even try to find a spot, you know, that was open and they'd camp on a side of a hill and then they'd tie their tent or something to a tree and <laughs> boy, were they mad. I mean, we just got so many people like just having these horrible experiences and they, or they took them forever to find a spot. And we just, felt so bad and we're it's a like, little stressful God. too there's an anarchy element to it when everybody just sort of like heads for the woods you're like oh my god yeah just not you know and we're, we're what can you do what can you do and so we came up with this idea and it's really developed pretty significantly um into what we call the front desk for camping it's a camp host 
And now they are a crack crew of like uh, firefighters now, that's pretty much, that are amazing. And their job is to kind of like show you on a dry erase map, they're talking to the crew out in the field and they're kind of telling you where there's availability and where you should go look. And if you, you know, you can't even, if you have too much stuff or you have some, you know, trouble carrying your gear, we have like a gear drop service where we kind of put it in a, um, a bin one through five and it will show up and you can exchange a tag and get it out in the woods, right? It, it's actually delivered to you. And that whole experience of like getting everyone in comfortably, it's a, meant to be like a little thing, but it's a humongously important thing. I've lived through it uh, a couple of times and yeah, it's, it's so, so crucial mm-hmm. and it's so amazing how well it works. Like I, that's the very first time I did it. I was, as we were wandering back into the woods, looking for a camp spot, the number one thing I thought was, my God, there are so many ways this could go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many ways you could fuck this up. Yeah. And people get mad when that's happened. So like, we just, that crew is like well oiled machines. So like the first, you know, the first year you do any crew it's kind of clunky and it kind of works. And then if those people stick around and didn't hate it and liked it, they kind of create their own community. And all of a sudden, before you know it, it's like, it's always been there and it works like a charm. And that's where we're at now with that, you know, um, some of the big sustainability stories for us, like having so much plastic was just like, it was just crushing to us. We're like, this is awful. What are we doing? Oh, this is great. Well, this was my next question anyway, so this is a perfect segue. <laughs> so let's jump into this because from the first time I went, the cleanliness relative to other music festivals I've been to, like I think people who go to music festivals at this point are just used to giant trash cans overflowing with crap everywhere and like paper plates and styrofoam cups and just junk everywhere. And this remarkably absent Epicathon, but I assume that you didn't start out that way. So I'm sort of wondering, like, in terms of sustainability, how central was that from the beginning? Or is that something you brought in more over, over the years? We always cared. And so we were always thinking about it. But it was as we started to really grow, you start to lose control of, like, telling your friends, just <laughs> bring potluck dishes, bring, you know, at some point, you know, to service that many people, you have to start bringing in pallets of water, you know, bottles. And, you know, everyone likes to charge for water in our world, which was just abhorrent to us, Ugh. which is, I'm like, how can you charge basic necessities, like charging for the bathroom yeah. or something, you know? And yeah, we, we just kind of grew into it from, you know, wanting to do the right thing, but it was just really kind of broke for us in 2009 um, we're just like, this is crazy. There's got to be a better way. And there were some festivals in Canada that were, you know, trying to do some stuff like um, reusable. But we, you know, we kind of had some very hardcore friends in the in the recycling world. And we just came up with just a really grand, you know, prognosis. Well, what if we do no plastic? Let's like do none. And then we're like, yeah, let's do that. Is that why water is free or was water always free? Water is always free, but you had, you know, a lot of it, we couldn't service in, you know, we found some tanks around that time too. We had water tanks, but we still had to have water bottles a lot everywhere or people brought cans or, but it was, it was mainly just the spirit, like just having the the sense of we're going to have like a quarter million cups that we're going to throw away. Oh, and I think actually in that preceding years we had this dream of compost right so we're compostable cups we were in there 
but Portland being such a sustainable kind of minded hardcore town, people were calling us out. They're like, yeah, you guys are not going to compost us. Nobody wants to. <laughs> no. Yeah. They say they're compostable, but there's, you know, yes. you're going to have to go find a special spot to do that. Mm-hmm. And we're like, really? Ah, we're <laughs> like, and that, you know, all of that led to that design thinking of, well, let's just get rid of it. And, you know, we had some very good friends that were working for clean canteen at the time. And they were kind of into this idea. Uh, and we kind of made up this idea of, a, you know, well, what if we have a stainless steel cup and, and everybody has to hold on to their cup? And what if we make, uh, you know, a, a silicone ring that you could put around the cup and a carabiner and you could clip that cup to your belt. So it's not such a pain in the booty to walk around all weekend with it. And, you know, we really thought through it and we ended up kind of really checking with the health department and we decided to, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, all the advice was make it optional, uh-huh. you know, and we're like, oh my God, well then what's the point? Yeah. And nobody's going to like this. And, you know, sure enough, we kind of threw it out to our crowd and they, they loved it. They're like, should we get rid of plastic? And it just, it kind of went early days of going viral, but it went viral. So it was the cups first. Oh yeah. That was the fake first step. But it worked so well and it just seemed like, duh. We were just like, kind of like, of course you should do this. It kind of pays for itself. I know. Well, this is the thing. You go to the festival and you walk around for three days with your cup attached to your belt, filling up free water from all these faucets around you. And you just cannot ever go back to a normal festival where every time you get thirsty, you have to find somewhere to pay $8 for a small bottle of water. You're just like, I could never go back to that. It's absolutely primitive. Like it just, it's one of the many things that seems so obvious once you do it. <laughs> yes. In Portland, we ruined the ability to charge for water. It was such a blowback <laughs> for years. Like I, I remember Music Fest Northwest was charging for water in those years right after we started giving it away. And there were people just couldn't we're just up in arms. So like, what are you doing? Um, we're like, we're sorry. We you know, like, you know, we're, I guess we ruined it. We didn't mean to, but for, we're going to give it away again. Can't help it. And so then comes the food. And of course, everybody who goes to Pickathon is very struck by the food system. and ends up talking and talking about it. I remember my first year that I experienced it. I went through what I'm sure everybody goes through the first time they encounter it, which is sort of initially presented with this idea of like, you have a token, you exchange it for a bowl. When you're done with the bowl, you exchange it back for your token. Sounds a little bit complicated. You do it once or twice. And once again, you're like, holy shit, how does the whole world <laughs> not work like this? This makes so much sense. So yeah. explain kind of the the bowl token system and who thought of that? And when did it, when, when was the first year that, that you, you attempted that? So 2010 was when we did cups and that was, you know, cut our waste stream down by a third, just that one thing. Mm. And we were like, yeah, but what we kind of noticed is we were, we still had a ton of like single use dishes and forks and, you know, all kinds of things that were related to just throwing it away. And you couldn't really compost a lot of that. You could say you're going to compost, but a lot of it ended up going to the trash yeah. because it's not, they, these compostable things at the time just aren't not truly like just trash compatible. And we just said, well, God darn it. 
what can we do? Let's, let's, can we actually, you know, go further and, and have this goal of getting rid of single use, you know, and it's, it's still kind of like a, a North star cause it's almost impossible, but like, you know, I do believe, you know, from the festival side, we were pretty successful. We said, you're going to have one bowl. So what is that going to be? And you're going to have a one utensil. So we came up with the perfect food bowl being a nine inch pasta bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love, I love your freaking bowls. I, I am not kidding. Me, me and everyone I know who's been to this festival has at least like a dozen of these bowls that I've used for years and years. I mean, the bowls that I got the first year I was there are still in my house holding up somehow. Yeah. And the cups. Uh, yeah. And it's so, they're so easy. Like to, you know, when going back to your point, these also just pay for themselves. Like we not only you, you, you buy a token, which costs you basically the amount of, of, of the bowl. You give that token every time you want to eat to a vendor, they give you food in the bowl. You finish it. You give it to the dishwasher. We wash those dishes all weekend. And then when you're leaving for the weekend, well, you get your token back from the dishwasher. And so you're not carrying your bowl. It's not like the cup. The cup right. was like, we said, you can carry the cup. It would be a lot more awkward to carry your own bowl <laughs> right. and to wash your own food. I mean, there was just, there's a, at the same time, we kind of created a do your own washing station in case people didn't want to use ours, but we weren't going to give you any plates. So you either have to bring your own or use ours. And almost everybody uses our token system. And then you're just carrying around a token. It's really easy. But the cincher and the way it kind of really works for everyone is you, at the end of the weekend, you'd give that token to the dishwash uh, station and they give you a clean dish to take home, right? That's, that's it. Yeah. Closes the loop. It also serves as a souvenir and it's incredibly useful. It is like the platonic ideal of, <laughs> <laughs> of a dish. It works for yeah. everything. Like soup, soup yeah, exactly. salad, there's exactly. like really nothing doesn't work in a nine inch pasta bowl. It's like, it's the, <laughs> It's kind of the spork of, of dishes. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so then you eliminated single-use cups in 2010. So maybe 2011, the first year I came, was the first year of the bowl tokens? Yeah, you experienced the very first, yeah, first year. And, I mean, we had a lot of, of hiccups in that dishwash system. We, we engineered a very low-flow special dishwasher that can run off of water from, that we had from the farm. Hmm. And um, there was a ton of engineering by a, a, the, a local dishwashing company to figure out how you could do this and do it on a farm <laughs> at enough volume to keep up. And it was rough, but I think to the most people, it was a, you know, it was a great experience and was, was another just, aha, we got our, another third of our waste stream down in just one year. It was incredible. There's just so much being thrown away. Was there any blowback at all? Was there any complaints at all? Like did it from the, attendees i mean maybe one or two over like 10 years <laughs> but it really isn't it's 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 incredible and that's that's what's so astonishing to me is like we've been trying to like give this away to festivals like look it doesn't cost you any money this actually pays for itself you should just do it it's so great but to your knowledge like you've been doing this system now which is eliminated or almost eliminated single use bowls and plates and stuff for a, over a decade now. Has anyone else picked it up? Has anyone else? I don't. I mean, I think there's some people trying the cups. Um, you know, there are some, some spinoffs, but I don't think anybody's doing it 
you know, there's a lot of optional stuff, a lot of like, oh, if you want to do it yeah. and you know, that doesn't work and, and you can't predict you can on how many to buy. And it right. just, it basically feels like a disaster to the festival organizer because they spend money and nobody did it. And then nobody really actually, you didn't get any benefit, but it's, you, you know, the only way this works and I, we've told it to everyone is like, you know, how many people are coming, you buy that many plates and dishes. It's not optional. What's left in the physical waste stream bucket that you're going after going after yeah there is trying to get all of your vendors to bring kegs of things right not to bring packaged goods mm. so we we've we pushed uh wineries to put stuff into kegs and that's a now a very common thing people are doing and it's cheaper for them so we're we've been pushing a lot of the people that want to bring us cases of glass and cases of packaged things that we, you know, we don't, we, we want to get these things in bulk from you in reusable containers. Right. And that's been pretty, um, that took a while to really say no to people if they wouldn't do it. They'd be like, really, you don't want this free stuff? We're like, no, <laughs> like uh, you, we can get it from somebody else. And, and we really want to, I think it's good for you too. Like you can start delivering to bars in this way. And, Sure enough, like, you know, Portland, you do see a lot of reusable stuff and, and things in kegs. And yeah, it's just, for us, uh, yeah, going back to why other festivals aren't doing it, we just, I don't really know. And I, I just, <laughs> I think there's a, there's a really kind of American sense that you don't want to force people to do something. It would be so inconvenient yeah. to, to have a reusable dish or carry a cup. It's just terrible experience. But it's crazy, like the audience loves it. It feels like you're doing something. It feels like you're helping, right? Yeah. It feels like you're involved in something with other people where you're like out of the ordinary. It's just so it's, it doesn't feel bad. That doesn't feel weird. Does it? No, it doesn't feel like an imposition. It feels like a fun thing you're doing yeah. together. So, so how much physical waste is left? Yeah, there's compost from food mostly. Mm. So what we, we still have is people don't eat all their food and our vendors you know, have some compost waste in our kitchen. So then I think the most of our waste though comes from our campers. As much as we ask them to try to like, I would say 80% of our waste is people in the campground. And, you know, it's hard to police that. Yeah. So we talk about it. We, we get folks to kind of be into it, but there's kind of a, uh, we are very generous on people being able to come because a lot of families come. A lot of people yeah, need yeah, to bring yeah. a lot of stuff and, what a pain in the butt if we were just policing every little thing. So, <laughs> yeah. but we've made it so that the festival side, when everybody gets up with a blanket at the end of the night, right? The only thing that's on the ground is blankets and people leave. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I keep going on about this. My, my first year there, it, it took me a couple of days to even pinpoint it. Like what is different here? Like, why does this feel and it wasn't until like the second or third day, I was like, oh, there's just no trash. There's just no trash everywhere. I'm so used to trash everywhere. It's yes. it's really mind-blowing. Yeah. So let's talk about some other sustainability um, aspects then. Yeah. And, and as you say, one of the other striking things about the festival experience when you go is just that it's not mobbed. It's not crowded like you can get food you can get water you can see the band mm -hmm. there's never been a band at pickathon that i've wanted to see that i've not been able to go and get a pretty good <laughs> view of just because there's not that many people there so tell me about sort of like the capacity of the space versus 
the sort of number of people you let in and kind of what is that calculation, that balance, and how has that evolved over the years? Uh, well, it goes back to as we were starting to grow and it wasn't just me supporting it off of my day job. And we just started, you know, we really started to need to kind of like, couldn't be just volunteer every, the hardest part of a really dreamy idea, a concept is probably the first couple of years, right? You're doing it off of like just vapors. Your family's involved. Everyone's just like willing to work for free. No one's like, it's a dream. The third or fourth year, it's like, I can't do that. I can't take off two weeks (laughs) of work. I'm sorry. I can't do it. Like things get in the way in life. And so you start to like fall back more and more on, on having to kind of pay for things. And that's usually the place where most of these kind of like community events die is that kind of hard transition right some professionalization is inevitable yeah, and we were hitting it hard we were hitting it hard we were like what are we going to do and we knew our we knew from other festivals that our path was going to take us to kind of grow in the capacity and we just kind of like deep down we're like god we don't want to go to that festival <laughs> but we didn't have any choice so we really just threw it out to our audience and asked them we're like okay Here's where we can do. Do you want us to just keep our ticket prices low and just grow this thing and get it to be like a normal festival you've always been to? Or because you could, I mean, let's let's just pause and make a note here. You could the space oh, it's huge. The acreage is huge and could accommodate lots more. About five X, yeah. Five times. Yeah. So what what is the what is the ticket sales capped at now? It's capped at 5K. Um, the space, you know, just one of our main fields could probably hold 50,000, right? Like that's how big our, our main field is. So it's kind of ridiculous, but it's really awesome. <laughs> they couldn't all camp, right? Though, like, uh, how they many- couldn't all camp, but we, you could run like a day festival. Like, a, you know, lots, lots of things about Pickathon wouldn't, you know, the more people would have really ruined camping too, in terms of like being a universal thing you just get for free. Right. You know, people forget that most times you pay for camping, but yeah, that was a conscious choice. So you asked the audience, you said, we, our expenses are growing. We can either let in a bunch more people or raise ticket prices. When was the first time you sort of presented that to the, to the audience? I think about 2007. Oh, it early was, on. You know, somewhere in that, that Avid Brothers kind of time frame. <laughs> it was somewhere in that range because we were, we just knew we had to kind of make a choice. We were kind of outgrowing our own infrastructure at the time. We weren't, the whole farm wasn't there, but we just really needed to know how we were going to do this. And we kind of also had the idea uh, way too early, it turns out, David, that we should scale, you, you know, by being a filmmaker in digital content. Uh, <laughs> that was part of our sustainability plan. We're like, okay, we're going to stay small, charge a little bit more, but we're going to create this beautiful film and we're going to export and infect the world we're going to like bend the, the arc of pop culture in some weird way. <laughs> and, you know, those are all kind of like, they were all interconnected at the time, those same ideas. So you first presented that question to the audience in 2007, the audience responds, please keep it small. We will pay more. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Have you returned to them with that same question again since? Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of new. I mean, we have, we, people know that about us. We have to often explain it more to people because at this point we are actually moderately priced. There was a point where we were pretty high priced compared to where festivals were. Now festivals are pretty expensive. 
Mm. So we have we have a lot less of those questions, and we never we didn't grow our ticket prices in the same way that our major. Comp- you know, we play Coachella on TV, right? We are like a two hundredth of the size, but we're in the <laughs> we're in the top ten festivals. But it's it's only by like playing that on TV by uh, we're really like a hundredth of the size or something goofy, right? I wonder the equation there, the sort of balance there. Like at a certain point, making the tickets more expensive will kind of start to make it feel exclusive, right? It will kind of start to price out. Yes some families and stuff. So is there, I mean, I know this is not a science, but like, is there a point at which you would consider letting in more people or sort of, how do you think about that balance ongoing? Um, Well, we definitely think about it on multiple levels. One is we don't charge for kids under 13, so they're free. And there are a bunch, I should say, there are lots of kids. Oh yeah. There's like 1500 kids under 12 and like 1500 teenagers under 18. It's, it's a lot. And we kind of made that look at, okay, these guys don't, they don't count because, uh, and it's hard for families to come. So like if you, yes, the tickets are more expensive. And if you want to come as a family and you're paying that much for uh, your kid to come, it becomes really proactive. So that's, that was some of the equation. We're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to charge for the adults. People can bring families. It feels a little more economical. And I don't know where the, you know, the balance there is. It's, it's still a tough one for us. We keep our prices as aggressively low as we can, but you know, we think about it every year. We're like, is this too much? Is this, you know, where, where are we at in this equation? (laughs) Is the video stuff, I mean, I assume part of the motivation of getting into video and streaming and all this kind of stuff was to open up a new revenue stream. Has it brought in much money? (laughs) Well, not really. <laughs> um, we've, you know, we've, we've, I mean, the most money we ever made raised is we, we did a concert a day with the recording academy right after COVID hit. And we raised uh, several hundred thousand dollars for um, music cares. We were right there with the Grateful Dead raising money. Uh-huh. Um, pretty hilarious. And that was like a great, great time. But, you know, as you might know, being in the business, things like YouTube and stuff just don't pay that much. Yeah. And monetization has been off and on. Um, in, in the balance, it's, it's been a positive because we've that ability for us to scale and kind of reach the world through our content has worked 100%. People know us. Some early video of like Mac DeMarco or, you know, Pete before he was ever known. Really great video, too, I should say. Like really incredibly good looking video. <laughs> We care a lot. Yeah, that crew is is like 700 people at Pickathon, believe it oh or not. God. It's like a it's like a movie set, right? The whole thing. And we still believe in it. I mean, I definitely look at it from a sustainability point of view. Like I am happy keeping it at the scale. Like we really do want to figure that out. It's just I think the timing is getting more right. At some point in the future there's is some way that this is going to be scalable and we are kind of we, you know, we spun off a company named Frequency to try to like make it better. And we've had some success. It's just that stuff is slow, 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 slow. But yeah. we, we think of it as, you know, a sustainable plank. It's like this is a good way to kind of like scale versus like just trying to ruin the land and do other things. <laughs> right. Uh, so f- final sustainability thing I want to ask you about. And this, I guess, is probably the, the other big piece of impact for any festival is just people coming and going to it, Mm -hmm. driving to and from it. So what were your first, I mean, I assume 
you wanted to tackle that from early on. So sort of what's the, what's the history of your efforts to reduce that, just the sort of gas and traffic and everything else impact of people driving to and from? Well, a lot of parts of that. So you incentivize it. For us, we were, we knew that people driving to Picathon was, you know, just how can we get less cars? And we've been thinking of this and pushing on it. And, you know, for us, where we are kind of now in 2022, we're like, okay, well, it's all about kind of like carbon taxing, right? Bikes are free. Like, hey, we're committed to that. You don't have to pay a cent. Ride a bike. It's only 12 miles from Portland. Anybody could ride a bike to pick a phone. Like, just do it. I should say you organize these sort of bike trains, these bike oh, yeah. groups so people can ride. We throw your stuff in a, in a moving van and we walk, we go out together, right? And... You know, the average biker is pretty sophisticated in Portland. They have their own system and they can carry a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, there's a, there's over, I don't know, I bet you there's 1500 bikes at Picathon. Mm. I think that's, that's a, it's a huge number. And we have that, that's level one. And then take a shuttle, take transportation. The max is five miles away. So we, we kind of price that the next level of cost. Like it's, it's cheap. You can just jump on back and forth and you're, able to come and go uh, anytime you want. And above that ends up being, um, you know, cars. So you want a car, you bring your car for the day or the weekend, you should carpool. We set up carpools and you just, you just kind of go up the, the food chain there. Then people want to camp and there's some car camping and there's a little bit of RVs, but we just have just a little. And those are, those are kind of like the level of kind of like taxing people. We're really, have been pretty successful at getting folks on bikes. On a big picture level, do you feel like your efforts in this area have been as successful as your efforts in like the solid waste area? I mean, mm. it's a really talk to any urban planner, anybody anywhere. Like this is the hardest nut to crack of them all. Like, are you satisfied with how well you've? Uh, honestly, I want to push more. I mean, we were toying with no cars, Whoa. but the American psyche, right? I mean, <laughs> maybe it would be fine. You know, like it's so funny. I just like you gotta like kind of like the cups and the plates, but yeah, we 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 people are traveling from far away, and we just know that that's a it is a tough nut. I think you just nailed it. It's not really something that we can just do and make it an easy experience for everyone, like plates and cups. Yeah. But, you know, the, you know, there is one really big thing we're doing this year that I don't know if you know about that is kind of like going to probably have the same level of impact sustainability wise as all the things we've done. We've been talking about we are redesigned the festival in a way that I'm, we're really excited about. I don't know if you know much about that. Only what's come out on the emails and I haven't looked that closely. So so just to help listeners sort of the way it was. And has been for the last decade is there's sort of these two big fields with big stages. Yep. And then there's like a barn and a, a little shack here. And then there's a, a stage off in the woods, the wood stage, just legendary, amazing <laughs> place. Little, little sort of um, stages scattered here and there that have, you know, people playing in sort of staggered timing. But before we get to this year, let's just briefly talk about the last few years which have been oh yeah you know yes difficult <laughs> for literally everyone in the world yeah. but uh, for you as well so the worst thing was in 2019 you know pickathon was very well known for a long time for having these big sales kind of these mm -hmm. big pieces of fabric 
hovering up in the sky, kind of blowing in the wind, sheltering you from the sun. Very visually striking. Mm -hmm. and in 2019, there was an accident. Two people died trying to take those down. Yeah. And that was traumatic and, and involved some fines and some, you know, some scrutiny. And then like the next year got canceled, I think. And then the year after that got canceled because of the pandemic. So it's been a real turbulent last few years. Talk a little bit about how you got through that. Because I, around the, the sort of 2020 years, was hearing rumors that it might be over, that Pickathon might be <laughs> over, that, that, that Pendarvis Farm might not be open to having it anymore. So just, I'm sure you could talk for hours <laughs> about this. You forgot that uh, the thousands of houses have moved into our parking lot too, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And and development is sort of encroaching oh, on yeah. the farm. So give us a sort of capsule summary of the last few years, kind of the turbulence, how you've gotten through it and how you're feeling about this year being kind of a renewal. Yeah, it's it was a lot of grief and trauma. So our accident was kind of like a, it happened in a really, in a way that was just really tragic, total accident. Just one of those things that, experienced people with very little, you know, 10 minutes left in the, in the last day, you know, and an accident happened and it was just, you know, awful. And we basically were in a, we were in a place where we were just rallying around our community, trying to understand how to like do grief and trauma. And that, that was like a very kind of, in a weird way, brought a lot of, of people together um, in a good way, as, as, even though we were really just kind of having this, this moment. And it made us think, you know, we didn't know exactly what we were, you know, we, we were trying to kind of thought, okay, we're going to, again, eliminate a lot of this risk. We're just not going to build this kind of things that are here. We've been doing this for 12 years, you know, and we're kind of felt really good about our systems. And we just decided, and that was like a pretty major thing for us. And we, but we, we didn't quite get to the point of being able to execute on it because of COVID, COVID hit. And that just really felt like a gut punch, not just to us, but to the entire, um, you know, the entire creative world. And, you know, we were, we were just felting, you know, there's how in the world are we going to survive? And that's when we pivoted to the kind of a concert a day helping um, Music Cares because we're like, okay, we got these people and then the, you know, some of the PVP, and then we started doing a lot of um, advocacy work with the, in the NEVA, National Independent Venue Association, and became kind of a really force to be reckoned with. And generally that lobbying effort to support kind of independent venues was one of the best things that happened out of, you know, in terms of organizing in the pandemic, it saved the entire industry, including us. Were the rumors I was hearing just rumors or was there a time when you seriously had doubt about whether the whole thing would move forward? Oh, we always have, you know, they're never really now. Like we're the combination, we're not in a solid ground because of, you know, not because of the farm. I mean, the farm is great. It's parking, you know, and you know, there's, there's just, there's a lot of challenges. The the farm is more valuable to, to be coming to houses. If it was a normal set of landowners, they would flip this thing and the whole farm would be mowed down for houses, like every tree, right? right? That, that's what 95% of the universe would do in their situation because it totally is ready to go, shovel ready to be giant, giant development. So it's just the Pendarvises themselves, really, their personage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's them and us willing to kind of try to adapt 
it's a, you know, the, we could also kind of throw in the towel. We're like, no way we are not up for another, <laughs> another figure it out year. <laughs> Cause it's like doing it over every time. And you're like, wow, it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of work. And we knew that when, you know, in these kind of last several years, like if we came back after, you know, in 2020, it's going to be a lot of work. Okay. Well, let's come back in 2021. It's going to be a lot of work. Okay. Can't do that. Nope. How we, <laughs> let's go back in 2022. And so here we are. Um, and it's even, you know, even more work because some of the plans that we built for the parking lots, now they have houses in them mm. and we have a different lot for parking and we're, <laughs> We're, you know, we're surveying it and mapping it and doing all kinds of things that um, are kind of ridiculous for a weekend event. But uh, <laughs> we're, you know, we're restoring and removing blackberries. It's, eventually, this whole thing is going to be mowed down and turned into houses. It's a, it's a last remnant of a golf course that um, we're using this year. Is this a long-term worry? I mean, are, oh, yeah. are you going to get closed out of parking entirely eventually? We have some plans, hopefully, for the next three to five years, I think, is, is our hope. Let's, that's, a, that's good news, and, but I, I can't promise. I think all we know is we're on this year, and the intention is there. Pickathon, I think, is strong enough. It, it should be able to last. We, we don't know um, if our, our future will be there, but I think, I think there's, a, there's a path for at least three to five more years, and we're looking to try to come up with something even, even longer. But it, it, it would really be nice, David, if it was just like – set and we could just operationally get better <laughs> <laughs> yes yes it would be nice if like the fundamentals weren't constantly shifting yes i will joke with people like man wouldn't it be great if we just had a business that was just running and not reinventing <laughs> itself every time you know maybe it wouldn't be as much fun but it's sometimes you just you think about that so well all that said then you're coming back here in 2022 mm -hmm. august 5th through 7th Approaching this year, you know, you sort of had a little bit of a blank slate because you had a couple of years off. So what's the new thinking this year in terms of kind of the grounds itself and rearranging? You're rearranging the, the physical space itself into what you're calling neighborhoods. So A, what does that mean? And B, what does it mean for sustainability? In what way is it more sustainable? The big takeaway for us was, okay, this 2020 hindsight here, when we're just sitting around talking with kids and the music and thinking about it. You start wandering, you're like, well, if you were going to redo it, how would you do it? And so, you know, one of the big things you mentioned, you know, you said you really love the wood stage. And that wood stage was like a kind of a big part of how we came to an aha. It was, there's the stage that um, David mentions. The, the wood stage is essentially a, a permaculture artist town, Mark Lakeman, built, you know, we harvest sticks from the forest and we make a sculptural stage. It's like a natural amphitheater that it's sitting in, and it looks to all appearances like a stage grew <laughs> grew out of the woods there. Yes, and we're rebuilding in a, this year in a really very awesome sculptural way. And But yeah, that stage wasn't a big lift for us. We built that every couple years. We had to clean it up and repair it, but... In in essence, the other stages we built, which were impressive, I mean, the, the Mount Hood stage you mentioned, which was one of the larger, like, temporary tension fabric structures in the world, and the tree line stage, which is a, a very kind of elaborate, um, you know, project where we, we try to reuse materials and they have to go somewhere else. Diversion architecture, we call it. It's a whole other sustainability part of Pickathon. And they were they're wonderful, but... 
you know, no matter how much placemaking, I call it placemaking, we, you know, people love the wood stage, no matter how grand, no matter how big it was. And the aha was like, you know, nature kicks your butt, kicks everyone's ass. Like, <sighs> like you just can't beat nature. So like, well, why try? Why don't we go the opposite way and rethink about this entire property and say, there's so many beautiful places on this farm. Why don't we just think about those beautiful places as settings and then kind of come in and vibe and add things to those places. And what if we go a little bit further? What if we think about times of day and places? What if you, in the daytime, when it's 100 degrees in Oregon, um, in the summer, what if we're in the woods? And we can, we're not, there's not as many people in the morning, so we can be a little more intimate and kind of keep the energy up. And we can migrate back and forth between spaces that are shaded in the woods. and then as the day gets goes on and the sun starts to set, we can kind of move out into bigger fields. And as it sets a little further, we can move out into the finally the biggest fields. And that's what we did. We're like, oh my, and we're like, oh my God, aha. Like, this is how you should build a festival. Like you, and if you think about it, it's like a bunch of wood stages. Like that's kind of the vibe we're trying to create this year there. So there are several brand new Stages, areas, oh, yeah. places yeah. this year. Neighborhoods, we're calling them. <laughs> and they are kind of, yeah, zones that are like natural zones. Like they're a bowl, or a hill, a connect. You know, there's some geographical thing on the farm. And we basically are kind of connecting those all together. Um, and the carbon footprint, you know, result of that is, we haven't done the math, but it, you know, it's, it's many, many factors lower because you're now not needing all this incredible heavy equipment. You're not trucking tons and tons of materials across the universe to get them to you. You're not spending all of this energy and gas to kind of build things that have to be quickly torn down. You, you're just dramatically reducing what it takes to put on something, even at the scale of Pickathon. So some of these new stages are going to be like the wood stage in that they just stay there? No, they're the sh mostly in the shade side. So like when we built the tree line or the main stage, the main stage, we built a lot of that sales for shade. We don't need shade because we're using nature. Right. We don't need to use giant, giant settings. The way we oriented the tree line stage, which was a stage that was built by grad students at the Portland State every year, they built it out of pallets, out of concrete tubes, out of two by fours. And after they were done. Very visually striking. Yeah. <laughs> after the festival, it went back to become two by fours. One year, the, it was built out of a kit of parts that became a homeless village for veterans in Clackamas County. So pretty cool, pretty cool ideas there too. But the scale of those kind of settings we had, we built because behind them, there really wasn't anything to look at. So you're building these kind of places. We're flipping that. Like, and now like then you're looking at trees, like you said, or, or the farm setting. And it, I think it's just better. Like nature kicks butt, like it kicks ass. Like why you try to, why fight it? Just like lean into it. You got what, like a week and a half, yes. <laughs> a week and a half to go. Are neighborhoods in place? Have you had a chance to sort of like walk around and experience these yet? Cause this will be brand new to the audience. Yeah, I mean, here, there's another whole factor we're doing that's new as part of that because we knew we couldn't pull all this off. So when we we kind of divided all of these neighborhoods and went out to the community and it kind of presented 
like, okay, each of these neighborhoods is a design build challenge. We, and we went out and tried to recruit a kind of a combination of architects, designers, project managers, builders. Oh, interesting. For each one of these teams and then kind of like treat it like their own little like Burning Man. <laughs> Not just because people build these elaborate things in Burning Man. I'm, I'm kind of using that, but it's like the PSU idea where we found a community that could every year design and build and those grad students, you know, it works because it's this class and because those grad students actually get amazing jobs after they do this project because everyone, they've won national architectures awards. We're like, well, we can, we can figure out other sustainable models for communities on why they'd want to do a design build. And it turns out there are many. So we have like 15 of these incredible uh, collections of design build teams, and they are all spinning things up that are to die for so each neighborhood has a, a team in charge of it, a team that owns it. Yep. It's going to be incredible. Oh, man. I can't wait to see that. I think it'll be awesome. And we are, we are, we, a lot of people have been manufacturing and building and, you know, a lot of this material is going to be reused again somewhere else. So it's, it's very, it's very awesome. I know that this approach to kind of doing festivals and kind of involving community and kind of creating all these other tie-ins of how it, why can you do, how can you do this in a way that all these teams, it's a sustainable process. They'll do it year after year. There's a lot of, lot to be mined there. And maybe we can talk about it on your next podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, just the one thing that's striking about this and all the other things you talk about is just how bespoke it is and thus how much care and investment it requires. This is not oh, something. Yeah. <laughs> this is not something a big company could buy and scale up and make lots of money off, right? Like this. Mm -hmm. There's just a high touch, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just not something that makes pure business sense. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't. Yes, it doesn't. It's a completely. We like to call it. It's the whole thing is completely irrational. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it. But it's uh, commensurately uh, beloved. Yeah, well, that, it is that kind of underlying um, dream-like, you know, you know, dream sandbox. We all, we often say like it's the Olympics of what everyone does. It's like, come do something at Pickathon. It's probably like what you do, what you do, but do the Olympic version of what you do, and <laughs> right. and that works. And and you kind of like getting folks to kind of have that break in life where they do something very much what they do, whether a carpenter or something, but they're doing something in this context where it just has such a big impact. You know, it's just a really rewarding thing for everyone. Yeah. And you can see people enjoying it and using it and loving it. You know, it's a very yeah. direct, direct feedback loop there. And in many cases, it furthers their professional life too. So that's where it all ties back together. Like sometimes they show off and they're recognized and their connections are made and businesses grow. And so we, we take a small band that, you know, Pickathon is known for discovery. We are known for kind of taking bands to the next level. And it, we've been saying that this is great music and having faith in that you should just book good music and that's all that matters. He doesn't need to be known. <laughs> I will say, and this is not true of many festivals, I have discovered lots of new bands through Pickathon. Like it's genuinely the not quite just about to break bands. You know what I mean? Like it's. Mm -hmm. If you lived here, David, we'd be hanging out, uh, playing cornhole and, and joking and debating music. I could tell. Like we, <laughs> that's, it's, 
it is a kind of the it's an open very open source idea where you you just kind of like dig into like communities of music and whatever is like the hot red red hot like elvis kind of movement of that scene probably isn't well known yet to a lot of people but the people who really care this is it right and you listen to those people and it and typically you don't even have to be a fan of that style you literally put that next to when you experience it you'll be like oh my god that's amazing <laughs> yes 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 i've had many uh many of those experiences over the years and uh i've kept you for too long but the one final thing to say about the music too is, is i think pickathon has become somewhat legendary in that bands love it and you can tell by the time they play, they've usually been there for a day or two and they're like, man, <laughs> you know, they, they love the bamboo bowls and they've just been like wandering around, chilling out. Like <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's hard to put into words, but like I've been to a lot of music shows, a lot of music festivals, I've seen a lot of live music and you can tell when a band is like, ah, like relaxed and like into it. They're on vacation. We get a lot of bands who just know that they're going to come and, chill out or be fans of other ones it's, it's really easy for us now the music's really easy we we are sought out yeah by musicians and by agents i'm sure in the in the grind of touring life like going to pickathon for two or three days is like feels like a vacation yeah, from work i mean and like again that sustainable thing we hope to kind of bend pop culture in a weird way with good music i mean artists that play pickathon immediately their lives change they bump up several places in the in what they can do. And that's so awesome, right? Like it's just, we can have this, we can take all this energy that's been focused back to, to kind of making them not only have a good time, but actually their lives change right after. And so the, this year, the big, I guess the big two artists, insofar as you'd call them headliners, are Valerie June and Wet Leg, which I feel like is a good snapshot of kind of the oh and jizza don't forget jizza <laughs> right the, the diversity uh involved all right well i've kept you forever i mean uh it's it's probably obvious that i'm a a fanboy in this <laughs> are you coming this year david I, yes, I actually I am. okay good we will we'll continue this conversation in person yeah yeah exactly i'd love to i'd love to uh, hang out once we get there but sort of the final question i'm you know, obviously your priority in the years going forward is just to help things survive <laughs> and and fight to preserve a little bit of parking against the incoming development. But in terms of sustainability in particular, is there a next big item on the list or is it mostly at this point just about kind of buffing and, and dialing in the pieces that are in place? I couldn't, I can't think past this year. We have to land this ginormous uh, spaceship on a dime. We're, we, the, the ambition we have this year is kind of staggering in terms of like taking all these teams. So we, you know, something will go wrong and then we'll, that will be like kind of the, or some things will go really right and we'll build on them. So like it will be, I don't know. I don't know. I hope, I hope what we're thinking about is this is amazing. And I think it is. And it's going to be the first year a lot of teams kind of hit their mark. If you remember way back when, when the PSU started, they had a pretty moderate pallet stage. You remember that stage? Yeah, yeah. I remember the first one. And it, and it grew and grew and ambition. I, I think if we get this right, all of these teams are going to kind of have that same arc. Whatever they do this year is just a tiny taste of what is to come. 
And we should say um, that for listeners who can't attend the festival, which I assume is probably most of them at this point, that the whole thing is live streamed. Yeah. You can buy a live stream ticket. How does that work? You can go to frequency.live. There's no vowels in that. F-R-Q-N-C-Y dot live. Or, you know, you can go to Pickathon and you'll you'll see a Pickathon live stream. You can basically get access to every show or kind of like a curated broadcast where we kind of pick and move around different stages. Mm. There's a couple ways you can do it. And it's great that you can kind of see the the 700 people working hard in person on on the Internet. They, it's you know, we take it very seriously, as you know, David, like we we're big film buffs. <laughs> Awesome. So people can uh, at least maybe drop in and see a little bit, see what these neighborhoods look like, even if they uh, they can't make it out. It'll be a wonderful experience. Awesome. Zale, well, thanks for taking all this time. Mm -hmm. And um, I will see you in a couple of weeks. Maybe we can play some cornhole. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.